welcome to Denson's Dispute Teams podcast series on managing contract risk. I'm your host, Fiona Caldo, and joining me is James Fairbairn, one of Denson's commercial disputes partners. Our subject today is notice provisions in commercial contracts. Hello, James. Hi, Fiona. Hi, thank you for taking the time to discuss this topic and to share your top tips to avoid things going wrong. Could you start with an explanation of what we mean by contract notices? Yes, contracts often require notices to be given prior to exercising certain rights under those contracts. Examples might include the right of a tenant to serve a notice to break a commercial lease, or the requirement on a buyer of a company to serve notice where the buyer wants to make a claim under a warranty. And the contracts typically are prescriptive as to the requirements for a valid notice. Those requirements cover three areas. These are form and content of the notice, the manner of delivery and the timing of that notice. Well, I'm really glad you're here to discuss this topic because I think serving contract notices is one of those tasks that puts us lawyers into quite a high state of alert. That's right. And it also gives rise to a number of litigation claims and disputes which can be avoided by some careful planning. Indeed. Well, it sounds like we've got quite a lot to get stuck into. But your first tip for us is quite a general one. My first tip is to recognise the importance of the contractual notice provisions. We often see problems that are created where a small mistake can make a claim harder or more expensive to pursue, or at worst defeat the claim altogether. These problems are avoidable if you just look at the contract terms before exercising the right and serving the notice. A good example of this is a case called Zeo Group International v Anger, where a court found that the notices exercising claims for breach of warranty were not validly served on one of seven defendants in accordance with the share purchase agreement. And as a result of that defective service on one defendant, all of the claims were dismissed. The agreement required hand delivery of the notices to the addresses listed in the share purchase agreement and by 5pm on a particular date. The courier attending the address attempted to serve one of the defendants, but discovering he was not there, went away. He came back later and left the notice at the address, but by then it was after 5pm. So although a reasonable attempt had been made to serve the notice in accordance with the contract, the notice was just too late and the notice was thereby invalid and the claim lost. So the advice is simple. Read the contract carefully before serving notice and then follow the requirements of the contract to the letter. And it's, it's quite interesting in that case, is it not, that the court has enforced the time limit so strictly, even where the defendant was unaffected by the failure to serve on time, not, not being in, wouldn't have been home and received the notice till slightly later in the day in any event. Yes, it, it's a case of form rather than substance. The fact that the defendants, or most of them, had the notice and that the, one of the defendants wasn't even at the address where the notice was to be served was immaterial. The notice didn't comply with the contract terms and therefore was invalid. Now your second tip, James, it takes us to the detail of a contract's requirements. Yes, that means looking at the form, content, delivery and timing of the notice. If I can start off by, by form, you need to look at what the contract says as to the form of the notice. It may sing, say things like it has to be in writing, it may need to be signed by a particular individual, it may need to be in a particular language. Uh, an example of this is what Lord Hoffman said in the Manai Investment Care and Eagle Star Assurance case. If the clause had said that the notice had to be on blue paper, it would be no good serving a notice on pink paper, however clear it might have been that the tenant wanted to terminate the lease. 
Well, that's quite a stark warning about complying, regardless of the, was the seeming importance of the requirements specified. Yes, it, it is. And it just it illustrates the difficulty that, that you have and why it is so important to go back to the contract and see what the contract says about the form of the notice. You mentioned that um, the contract may expressly provide, for example, notice in writing, and presumably that could be defined to include email or to exclude email. It could be. Um, very often a well-drafted contract will make it explicit whether notice in by email is satisfactory, but if it just says notice in writing without saying that email is or is not acceptable, then you're likely to be all right using email. But again, look at what the contract says. So turning to content, what is it that the parties need to be alert to? Again, it's a case of looking at the contract and seeing what the contract requires in terms of content. Look, it's very important to follow those requirements to the letter. An example here is a claim under a warranty in a share purchase agreement or business acquisition agreement where the buyer making a claim has to set out an estimate of the claimed value. You need to be careful to ensure that the right figures are included in the notice. And would a, would a lack of content in that sense then invalidate the notice? Uh, potentially it would do. The court won't make good any deficiencies and fill the gaps. Um, this is illustrated by a case called Tioco and Aircom Jersey which concerned notice of breach of warranty sent by buyers uh, to the of a company to the sellers. And the court found that the buyer's notices had failed to satisfy the requirements because they said had not set out the grounds of the claim, which were required to be set out in the notice. The Court of Appeal stressed that a seller must be left in no reasonable doubt, not only that a claim may be brought, but as to the particulars on, of the grounds on which the claim is to be advanced. And presumably this will sometimes give a party with a claim a bit of a dilemma. It suggests that they can't sit on the fence and keep their options open as to the way in which they'll ultimately structure the claim. That's correct. You can't get out of the problem by, by omitting information and hoping that you can provide it later. You need to put into the notice the information that is required at the outset. And will the courts help parties out when it comes to um, serving notices and the content at all? some extent they might by correcting linguistic difficulties, but they're not likely to put into the notice information which is clearly missing and which should have been there, even if it was apparent to the recipient of the notice. If the form of notice is correct, does it then matter when it is delivered? It does matter. The notice provisions are likely to specify to whom the notice should be given and how it is to be delivered, and it may require copies to be sent to third parties. Typically, the notice provision will also specify the accepted modes of delivery, for example, recorded post, email, personal delivery, etc. And you must ensure that the method of delivery set out in the contract is used, because otherwise the notice will be deficient. Sending a notice by recorded delivery is unlikely to be adequate if the contract requires delivery by first class prepaid post. Correct delivery also allows you to rely on the deeming provisions in the notice clause, which will say that the notice is deemed delivered on a certain date if it is sent by the accepted method of delivery. You also need to consider whether a notice uh, dealing with a particular aspect of the matter has to be delivered in a different form to the standard requirements. Uh, this can be illustrated by looking at the JCT form of building contract, which applies different notice provisions where the termination provisions of the contract are being used to where other rights are being exercised.
So you may ultimately need to check more than one part of the contract before deciding how you need to serve your notice. You, you, you may indeed. I mean, the JCT contract is unusual in that regard, but not exceptional. So, so you should check very carefully exactly which clause you're operating to make sure there are no specific requirements for that clause. James, you mentioned the Zale Group case showing what happens if um, a notice is given late. Could you tell us some more about the importance of timing? Yes, timing is very important. If the notice is given late outside the prescribed time limit for giving that notice, that will be fatal. It surprises me that potential claimants unnecessarily leave giving notice to the last minute, and that leaves no time for corrective action if something goes wrong, such as a courier discovering that someone has moved. So the contract will specify a date after which the valid notice cannot be given. It sometimes specifies an early date before which notice cannot be given. And both dates must be observed. Then you need to consider whether the timing obligation is met by sending the notice out or whether it is a requirement of the contract that the recipient has actually received the notice by the cutoff date. Uh, deeming provisions where the notice is deemed delivered on a particular date can be helpful in this regard, but they can be a friend or a foe because if the deeming date takes the deemed date of delivery beyond the cutoff date, then that will be fatal. On the other hand, a deeming provision can create a non-rebuttable assumption that notice has been given on a particular date, even if the recipient has not in fact received it. Now turning to your third tip, that relates to what can be done to mitigate the risk of these types of problems arising. Yes, this involves looking at the contract at an early stage when it's being drafted to make sure that the provisions in the contract are practicable. Notice provisions often contain a number of requirements which create something of a procedural obstacle course. And the more of those requirements that are in the contract, the more likely it is that your client will be tripped up when it comes to exercising the rights under the contract. This is in my experience because people give insufficient attention to what they regard as boilerplate clauses um, and focus more on the commercial aspects of the deal. So when, for example, a warrantor wants to make a claim under a share purchase agreement, those can be defeated by creating a number of procedural requirements of the notice, which are difficult to achieve in practice. And potentially, by including those requirements, you've defeated a claim which might be worth many millions of pounds. Therefore, it's in the counterparty's interest to make the procedural obstacle course as difficult as possible, and in your client's interest to make the process as simple as possible. So do you have any specific drafting tips when it comes to notice provisions? Yes, consistent with that, I think you should try and keep things as simple as possible. Less is better. For example, why do you have to include a pre-estimate of the value of the claim in giving notice of a warranty claim? also include as many different methods of service as possible so that you can find one that's going to be usable in practice. Avoid conditions precedent to giving notice. They're often unnecessary and again, they just create another difficulty. A good example here is the requirement in many commercial leases that before exercising a break clause, that all of the obligations in the lease have to be in, observed at the time when you're exercising the break right and that can create difficulties in practice. So in summary, keeping things simple? Keep it simple. Have an eye to how this might have to be worked in practice so that it's not going to be too difficult. 
and don't regard the clauses relating to notice in the contract as just being so much boilerplate that doesn't need to be focused upon. Thank you, James. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on this tricky and important topic with us, and particularly for being so practical in your advice as to how to avoid problems. Thanks, Fiona.